Our text today comes from an incident toward the very end of Jesus' life, just before Palm Sunday. And he and his disciples are walking down the road and they get into a fight about who is the greatest. Who's going to be considered the greatest of them? And here's what Jesus says. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Amen. When I was growing up in Arizona, one of the things that I was fascinated with was the, the Wild West, the stories about the old days in, in the West and uh, cowboys and the Indians. And in particular, I was fascinated with stagecoaches with the fact that you could get in this little wooden coach pulled by a team of horses and you could travel all the way from like St. Louis across the Great Plains and over the Rocky Mountains across the Mormon Desert and you could make it all the way to California in this little coach, the stagecoach. I came across this interesting uh, piece of information from a book called The Writer's Guide to Everyday Life in the 1800s. And they, they were trying to collect uh, samples of what it was like to live in the 1800s. And one of the sections is called Stagecoach Etiquette, rules for, for how to go in a stagecoach. So here's what it said. If a team runs away, sit still and take your chances. If you jump, nine times out of ten, you will be hurt. Don't smoke a strong pipe inside, especially in the early morning. Uh, if you chew tobacco, spit with the wind, not against it. If you have anything to take in a bottle, pass it around. A man who drinks by himself in such a case is lost to all human feelings. Be sure and take two heavy blankets with you. You'll need them. Don't swear nor lop over on your neighbor when sleeping. Don't ask how far it is to the next station until you get there. Take small change to pay expenses. Never attempt to fire a gun or a pistol while on the road. It may frighten the team, and the careless handling and cocking of the weapon makes nervous people nervous. Don't discuss politics or religion, nor point out places on the road where horrible murders have been committed. Don't imagine for a moment that you're going on a picnic. Expect annoyance, discomfort, and some hardships. If you're disappointed, thank heaven. From the Omaha Herald, 1877. It was John Claypool who pointed out to me a really interesting fact about stagecoach travel in the last century there. You know, um, it was, stagecoaches were the main way of getting around back then. And you could buy on the Wells Fargo stagecoach a first class, a second class, or a third class ticket. 
Well, we all understand in modern day travel on airplanes, what's the difference between a first, a second, and a third class ticket, right? In first class, you get a lot more room and you get better food, free drinks, you know, a little bit down on second class and then third class, they just cram you in there. You know, um, those are the differences between the classes. But in a stagecoach, if you looked inside, there's just two wooden benches, two hard wooden benches, each seat four people on each side. And so everyone got the same amount of space. And they didn't serve food, so that was the same for everyone. So the question is, on a stagecoach, what was the difference between a first, a second, and a third class ticket? You know what it had to do with? It had to do with what was required from you in a time of need. If the stagecoach got bogged down in a mud pit and got stuck, or if they came to a, an incline that was too steep for the horses to pull the fully loaded stagecoach up, if you had a first-class ticket, you got to stay inside the coach all the time. If you had a second-class ticket, you had to get out and walk around the mud bog or walk up the incline. And if you had a third-class ticket, you had to get down in the mud and push. You had to help them get those horses up the hill. You had to work with the driver to solve whatever problem they got into. You see, those who paid the most had to do the least. And those who paid the least had to do the most. When I heard this little snippet of 19th century lore, I thought to myself, what an amazing reversal Jesus did to that set of values. The hierarchy of values that Jesus of Nazareth left for his disciples that we heard in this text, an argument breaks out among Jesus' disciples about the issue of who's the greatest in the coming kingdom. They were debating this whole matter of what constitutes first, second, and third class standing among peers. And Jesus pointed out that the culture in which they lived was very clear on this point in the, the Gentile culture, the Roman culture. What made a person a first class was that they didn't have to work. Other people served them and did work for them. They were the ones who lorded it over others and made them do whatever it was they wanted. But Jesus said, I am turning that world of values upside down. I say to you, the really first-class citizen in this world is the one who is willing to serve, the person who is quick to climb down and get his feet in the mud and his hands in the dirt and do whatever needs to be done in order for the common good to be advanced. This is what I designate as the highest in the order of reality. You see, for Jesus, servanthood was not an emblem of shame at all but it represented the highest status to which a human being could aspire. This is not a tangential issue in Jesus' thinking. It's a central concern. On the last night of his life, as he gathers his disciples for the final meal in the upper room, he acted out this principle. 
What did he do? Well, before you eat in those days, you, you had to wash your feet. It was just what you did. And Jesus, before anyone can do it, grabs the towel and the basin and goes around and washes the feet of his disciples. He stood up from the table, laid aside his own clothing, wrapped himself in the garb of a slave, and proceeded to wash the feet of all the disciples. It needed to be done, and so he did it. This is what it means to be a real servant. And Jesus said, this constitutes the very pinnacle of human greatness. In the Christian sense, this reality is not defined by the privilege that exempts one from hardship, but rather by the earthy willingness to do whatever needs to be done to serve the common good. Some people over the years, more recently, have picked up on this theme, and even uh, there was a guy named Robert Greenleaf who wrote a book called Servant Leadership, in which he, he proposed that the best way to be a leader in a corporation is to define yourself as a servant, and that in doing that, that actually uh, makes you, your job, your leadership of the uh, organization more authentic and effective. But it's not easy. It's not easy to define yourself that way and to have that sort of humility. People are always sort of trying to get ahead. That's what our text shows, that it's kind of human nature to do that. There was a man named Langdon Gilkey who was teaching at a private school in the interior of China in 1943 when the Japanese took over the mainland. He was one of 1,500 Allied citizens who were rounded up and put in a prisoner of war camp called Shantung Compound. Years later, he became a professor uh, at the University of Chicago and wrote a very famous book called Shantung Compound. Most of these American, Canadian, British, and Dutch citizens had gone to China on some sort of missionary or humanitarian endeavor. However, Gilkey was amazed at how inhumane they became with one another when the food supply got scarce and the living space cramped. One instance he shares in the book is that at one point, the American Red Cross sends 1,500 care packages to Shantung Compound because there's 1,500 people there. And normally it would seem that everyone would get one package, right? But the Americans went to the people that were running the camp and they argued that the 1,500 care packages should only be divided among the Americans because they came from the American Red Cross. Hard to imagine these missionaries, these humanitarians, when things got tough, when their existence was threatened, it became very difficult for them to live the way they, they had before. Langdon Guilty said, I know that the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, but I've seen fear cast out love. Any notion of the common good was evaporated and completely out of sight. The one exception, he says, was this group of Dutch Benedictine monks whose monastery had been overrun by the Japanese. These individuals had long before made a commitment to simplicity and servitude. And Gilkey watched with wonder as these folks quietly set about to do whatever needed to be done in simple service, while everyone else in their fearfulness was caught up in exploitation. 
he saw under those dramatic human circumstances that the most valuable quality of all was not how much a person knew intellectually or the rank that they held socially, but how willing they were to become a genuine servant. This same truth was echoed in a series of television interviews that Bill Moyers did with Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell was one of the world's greatest anthropologists, and he had studied deeply all the major cultures and religions of the world, these ancient stories that make up a culture. And he said at one point, the ultimate aim of all human quests for authenticity was neither a release from pain or ecstasy for oneself, but the wisdom and the power to serve others. He said the distinction between a celebrity and a hero is that celebrities live only for themselves, while heroes make the ultimate aim the redemption of human society. As I heard this renowned scholar reflect the best wisdom from all the cultures, I realized that Jesus was at the heart of reality when he said, let the one who would be greatest among you be the one who serves. Jesus was reflecting what all the great religions and cultures of the world knew. I guess my question for you today is, uh, are you willing to be a servant for God? Are you willing to take that role? In Alexander Irvin's novel, My Lady of the Chimney Corner, a lady went to comfort a neighbor whose boy lay dead. She laid her hand on Eliza's head and she said, woman, God isn't a printed book to be carried around by a man in fine clothes. He's not a cross dangling at the watch chain of a priest. God takes a hand wherever he can find it. Sometimes he takes a bishop's hand and lays it on a child's head in benediction. The hand of a doctor to relieve pain. The hand of a mother to guide a child. And sometimes he takes the hand of a poor old woman like me to give comfort to a neighbor. But they're all hands touched by his spirit, and God's spirit is everywhere looking for hands to use. Will you let God use your hands? I know during this pandemic it's a little hard to do that, but this won't last forever. One of the great challenges that we face as Christians is to be willing to be God's hands and feet in this world. Someone once said that every organization can be likened to a boat. And in a boat, there are three types of people. There are the riders, the rockers, and the rowers. Now, the people that rock the boat are the people that are just always complaining about something. They're the negative people. And by rocking it from side to side, they keep it from going straight ahead very well. Now, the riders, they're the people that they don't do anything bad like the rockers, but they're just along for the ride. And the third group, the really important group, are the rowers. Those are the people who put their hands on the oars and keep the boat moving forward. God asks us in the church to row his boat and his spirit is looking for our hands 
to use in ministry. John Claypool suggested that in 19th century stagecoaches, first-class travel was defined in terms of the privilege of not having to do something in a time of need. In Jesus' understanding of reality, the first-class way to live in our kind of world is precisely the opposite. It is the willingness to get out and push, push the vehicle for the common good through whatever it might be facing. Here is the finest expression of what it means to be fully human. The greatest, finally, are not those who exempt themselves from effort, but those who become willing to serve. Amen.